0: Startup Heroes Podcast. Welcome back to the Startup Heroes Podcast. The podcast where we celebrate founders and investors that have done things differently. Hosted by me, Amory Polden.
1: And me, Joshua Minsk. And today we're joined by Augustin Celia. Augustin is a serial entrepreneur who's built companies within e-commerce, search, and SaaS. Augustin's most recent company, Uptime, was a predictive maintenance platform with a mission of disrupting a massive industry that you might not have thought about before. Elevators. Uptime raised over 9 million euros and had set Augustin and his team up on a journey filled with ups, downs, and a particularly interesting end, which any founder out there building should listen to and learn from. And with that, let's jump right into today's episode.
0: So Augustin, first of all, massive, massive thanks for coming onto the pod. Really excited uh, to talk to you today. Should we kick things off with a little bit of your background and what brings you up to founding Uptime?
2: Yeah, thanks a lot to you as well, I'm Marie, to inviting me. In terms of background, so I started in a very general way. I, I built a few companies, first one in e-commerce, so I was selling philosophy courses. I have a double degree in finance and political sciences, so nothing to do with technology or elevators. And by some circumstances, I ended up doing an internship in Moscow for Otis, the worldwide elevator leader company. And after a few years, after I built another e commerce company uh, in Russia, it brought me to be the executive assistant. Today we would call that chief of staff to the Otis EMEA president. That was a nice baby, like 7 billion PL. We had various companies, including Otis, uh, 35,000 people. And it led me to to discover, you know, the ins and outs of the elevator market and how much it was completely dysfunctional.
0: I've got to rewind. I've got to, I've got to understand what encourages someone that's been to Sion Poe that's done finance and strategy at university to say, elevators, it's the elevator market. That's what I'm going to go and work in straight out of university. How?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. you have to to know that it was not a decision about elevators, hopefully, otherwise... Uh, would have been quite sad. The real story is, I wanted to go to Russia, and that was 2008, 2009, because I had a kind of a link with that country at the time. I really enjoyed the, the direction it was taking at the time, economically and, and socially in Moscow. And I just tried to find any kind of internship in an international company while doing my studies. And that's how I fell into Elevator. So completely randomly. Gotcha.
0: And then you left, so you left Otis having spent a couple of years there, ended up founding two e-commerce businesses. So again, I'd love to understand why you did that and I guess what happened with those businesses.
2: Yeah, uh, I think the most interesting one out of the two is, is the furniture e-commerce business uh, in Moscow, uh, in Russia. The first one about philosophy course was really like a, a kind of a sandbox of entrepreneurship, like try to build a Team Ferriss muse for work week kind of stuff. It did kind of work only four hours a week, but it didn't bring the 40k euros I I was told by Tim Ferris I would earn. But (laughs) but in terms of experience, it was great. And the company eh, of furniture e-commerce in Russia, it was one of the main reasons I was interested by the Russian economy at the time is that you had something that had jumped from being Soviet Union with really like no economic tissue, especially in the B2C space, in the retail space, to full e-commerce with tons of offer. And you had consumers that went from a world where they didn't have any choice to buy something to tons of choice on the internet. And rocket internet, big companies had taken the lead in the country. And one of the, of the segments that was untouched yet was furniture. And at the same time in the US, you had furniture e-commerce company doing really good. You had Wayfair, you had design.com or something like that. I don't remember the exact name, but there was a trend on it and there were money flowing. And I thought, okay, that's a bit the last segment, one of the hardest one, but the last one, which is untouched, I'm going to give it a try. So that's a bit the thinking around it.
0: And so you've got this idea. You ended up spending about two and a half years on Mark and Arrell, that furniture business. You scaled it to, I think about a million in sales in, in under 12 months, which is a big achievement. Why did you decide to wind that business down or, or, or to sell it?
2: The story behind it is that I started first a, a big furniture platform. And then I found out that I would make much more value with the kind of white label, like you, you build your own brand in e-commerce. That's where you get all, most of the margins. So I, st- I tested tons of things and I came up with this Markoel, which was French style, middle-class furniture. We would buy it from China first, and then I would actually build it per demand in Eastern Europe. And what happened is 2014, uh, you had a big crash on all on prices, a big crash on the ruble uh, that basically fell uh, twice, lost twice of its value. And I had orders in rubles from Russian customers that I would then buy in euros from the factories. I didn't raise any money it was all like a bootstrap business and i ended up with this big ethics problem that was a bit tough to manage that's the first reason and the second reason is because 2014 is the first war in Ukraine. They took Crimea, they started with Donbass. And I remember that perfectly. I was on the brink of signing the purchase of an apartment with my wife uh, in Moscow. And then the war got out and I, and I told my wife, look, this is not looking good for the next 20 years, Putin is going definitely in the wrong direction. And it's not a shorter movement. I think we should leave. Uh, and that was the trigger decision of, of, okay, I'm not going to stay 10 more years in Russia and build my company here. Uh, I actually want to have a personal life, which is aligned with my values and I want to leave the country. Uh, and I was, yeah, end of turn 14, beginning of turn 15.
0: And you sold the business. or did you, did you end up winding that one down?
2: Well, actually, I I sold my shares. I had a a Russian friend and partner, uh, and we hired a manager uh, that was recommended to us by the furniture industry experts locally. And my goal was to manage all the e-commerce and the supplier relationship from Paris, and she would manage all local operations. What exactly happened, and it's a bit of a Russian story, is that she stole the entirety of the business in a few weeks after I left the country. And afterwards, my partner did a few like uh, uh, shoots, and it ended up that she was a professional raider. She had done that a few times. She had a fake identity with a fake Hungary passport, but actually she was Ukrainian. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a long story. <laughs> that was, my, uh, yeah, a, a, f- a first bath in, uh, in real life.
1: It's a really interesting story for me because I know a lot of people in the e-commerce space who have registered a business in an overseas country and tried to run the business from whatever the country they choose. Sometimes it's tax benefits. Sometimes it's because they want to target the local market of that country, building a company in a different country. What kind of lessons did that teach you about what you need to understand about the local culture and that sort of thing? And what would you do differently next time?
2: I think understanding the local culture is key on, on two aspects. The first one is understanding your target customer. And and I've seen many initiatives uh, around, for example, Russia led by European or American people that didn't get a good understanding of the, of the Russian customer and of the Russian way of doing things, and especially on the Russian expectations around the customer. And I think that applies to, to all the overseas markets is you have specific expectations and thinking your consumer in those markets is, is similar to your occidental customer. That's not the case. And the second one is about the ease of operations and management. This is something you, you learn at, at business school, but the management practice and the, and the work culture is very different as well. If I had to redo it again, I would definitely have a Russian partner like I did, but find someone much more hands-on that already has uh, experience in operating an e-commerce business. Because this guy had an experience in operating businesses in Russia, but not in that specific space. So we entered tough problems with customs, logistics, all that kind of stuff that you really want to have someone that has done it already, and you don't want to care about them. Interesting. Okay.
0: And so you then, having left that unbelievable circumstances, you go back for what looks like a bit of a sort of recalibration, sort of rest and, and, and think about what you're going to do next. Right, you're back at Otis for a year as chief of staff. Um, doesn't take you long though. You're out founding another company, Shuffle in Paris in 2015. Can you tell us a bit about that one?
2: Oh yeah, almost forgot that one. <laughs> uh, so Shuffle, it's it's a gig. Uh, it's it's a very nice gig with friends. Uh, I actually did it while I was at Otis, uh, but it didn't look good on this. On, on, <laughs> saying it at the time, but uh, with with a couple of friends, uh, we had an idea, and and I think it's something we see now. For example, with ChatGPT against Google, is that the problem with the Google kind of search engines is you have too much answers and too much choices, and that you as a consumer, you always you might like to to be presented with a. Sh- I mean just a few answers and just like direct answer to your question, a very synthetic and not a lot of choices in your options. So what we did is we built a, a vertical search engine where we would actually scrap and add up objects from many, many sources in one single vertical. So what does it mean concretely? Like for example, for restaurants, we had the database of all the nice guys like Michelin and others. We had Of course, all the Google Maps data, the Foursquare data, the Facebook data, and all that stuff. And we would merge that in one single object, so we would know everything about a single restaurant. We would know, for example, that Google had better data about opening times, Foursquare had better data about the kitchen being done there, uh, and Facebook had better data about the taste, just as an example. And we would merge that and give that as an experience in a filtering kind of engine. So you would say, I need a restaurant in Hawaii open tomorrow that is vegan in this price range for an evening deal. And he would give you the best three options. And that was it. So that's what we built. And it took us like six months to, to build the engine and, and a nice like uh, UX on it. And basically what happened then is I was not a B2C like, app guy and I didn't fund nice way of monetizing it i mean it was a good idea but i didn't see the business at all there so we sold the search engine to a concierge company uh, so you know you have a platinum Amex, or visa and you call someone to book your table well basically there are concierges behind the desk looking for something and those guys they needed to finance it much faster so we sold that engine to them so they could be more productive in finding what customer needed
0: smart and it was quick turnaround as well right that ran for a year a nice little business there and then we're coming to uptime now so this is i guess the third or possibly even the fourth company that you've been involved in the itch of entrepreneurship is strong um, you got all this experience in um, in the elevator sector as well enter uptime so tell us about that that genesis why you left otis a second time to go and found uptime
2: In a few words, you have to picture the elevator market uh, very similar to what you know about Nespresso or Xerox. So the equipment is being sold at a low margin, installed into buildings, and then all the money or the margin is made on maintenance, on service. Considering that the lifetime of an elevator is 20, 30, 50 years, you have... Very big installed base that keeps growing because you don't really demolish buildings or demolish elevators; you modernize them, uh, so you keep growing and growing and adding up to that installed base, and you have a big cash cow of service, uh, and that's what made companies like Otis so successful and so profitable for industrial companies in the past, having forty to fifty percent EBIT margins on service and five to ten uh, on, on new equipment. Now, when I was there as chief of staff, uh, I noticed that this recipe was, was running into a, a wall. And, and the wall was the following, that they had taken so much money out of, the, out of the cash code that customer expectations were not fulfilled anymore. You had some expectations that elevators should actually run better, have a better uptime, less downtime, less breakdowns, less problems. And that was not fulfilled at all. And that triggered uh, competition from lower end players small and medium players that would just fight on the price. So the industry entered a a price cycle where everybody fought on the price. And the last thing that I noticed is it was completely low tech. Like your elevator mechanician just goes around building to building with, you know, his tools and that's it nothing to help it. So the vision we had at the beginning of uptime was if you put some technology to help the mechanic do a better job, reduce the, the number of breakdowns, you will have an impact on the value add and on the price you can sell your service and you, and you can stop fighting on price, but you can start fighting on quality. And you also have cost benefits because basically your mechanician doesn't need to go that often because with some good technology, you can actually anticipate breakdowns and solve them faster. So it was really like okay this is an old industry making tons of money actually commoditizing itself right now we can stop that by bringing technology and making it better for the whole value chain okay
0: gotcha so it's a predictive maintenance efficiency play and then trying to sort of fundamentally transform I guess, the dynamics of or the competitive dynamics within that industry. So it's a it's a big vision, right, in terms of it's, it's pushing against the tide of uh, or the direction of travel in a specific industry, but an industry with a lot of margin, a lot of fat that hasn't you know, been touched by technology. So you can see how, how you guys got excited about that and how investors might as well. When you started that business, and when you started with that idea, what was your aspiration in terms of what, what did you want to build with uptime?
2: Our aspirations were very bold. We were convinced that if you would bring the right technology, then a way or another, there would be a way to flip the market. So there would be massive adoption of the tech because the gains in quality and I would say UX of the elevator would be much higher, of elevator maintenance would be much higher, and the gains in cost would be also very high, which would trigger also massive adoptions from the operators. Uh, we didn't have a completely fixed business model. So it was not like we want to be Audis or we want to be uh, uh, the software company running behind Audis and Connie and Schindler. We did have this conviction that our technology should be basically equipped in every elevator around the world. And that is a big market.
0: And was this a was it a pure software solution or was this a, um, a hardware plus software product?
2: It's hardware plus software because the start of predictive maintenance is IoT in, in industries. So you have first to know well what's happening on the field and the good way of doing that is IoT. So it starts with hardware, uh, how to equip the elevator with a hardware that will tell you real time what's happening and how can you make use out of that. And the hardware part was clearly, I would say, underestimated by us it's a big barrier and it's a big trouble to manage a big part of the tech and the value that we created was the hardware itself yeah you spent
1: that earlier part of your career at otis so a lot of the problems that you understand understood around the industry were otis centric and i imagine that they did map out to other companies but when it comes to the tech specifically i imagine creating a platform that is completely tech stack agnostic so it works with any elevator provider has its challenges right some some pretty significant technical challenges that you need to get past how did you go about sourcing a technical co-founder did you did you actually find a technical co-founder or did you hire an agency? How did you go about doing that?
2: Um, Well, well, two points here in your question. The first one is indeed doing something tech agnostic that was far from Otis was extremely important to be able to address the market. And that's also one of the major failures of competitive technology we've seen on the market is that they were focused on one single brand. And, And basically Otis predictive maintenance is focused on Otis equipment, which limits a lot the adoption and the usage of that tech. So indeed, it was very important to be brand agnostic from the beginning. And I would say that applies to any other segment. And in terms of technical co-founder, so the co-founder I I, I created a company with was not technical, it was my brother. His value add was on operations, which I had learned from my e-commerce years that I didn't like at all. <laughs> And and I would expect, we expected that there would be many operations in that business because it was hardware, it was maintenance related with people on the field. And that was a good bet because indeed there were many operations that I would never wanted to run. And regarding the tech, we took the decision to learn it by ourselves at the beginning. So we built the, the proof of concept ourselves, uh, basically E2Con. Uh, the hardware part, and and we built a functional IoT for elevators out of a Raspberry Pi and an Arduino. And it took us a few months, but at least we, we learned the hard way how it works. And I did all the software parts. So I coded uh, the back end I coded the first front end, not many, but parts of this code were still operating six years after. And the architecture that I, I designed uh, was also kept uh, for, the, for the whole run of the company. And that I think helped us then identify uh, the right CTO and hire the right team, because we, we really deep dive, okay, what should be the tech stack, how we should build it, and how, how does that happen? How can you learn to code very fast and build something up? That's a great way to approach it.
0: And So um, take us on a little bit of the journey building on that product roadmap that you've just articulated there. So you have this MVP that you've hacked together. How quickly did you guys try and go out and start selling the product? You know, did you go back to Otis, for example, and try and sell it to
2: them first? So at the beginning of the, of the, of the story, when we had that MVP, Before trying and selling it, we wanted to make sure it it was actually bringing any value. So we first went at building owners and building managers to get it installed on a low scale and put it in the hands of Elevator Mechanics and of the actual customers to see if it was bringing value. So this was really hustling, calling people, calling your cousin that is a condo owner and take care of the building operations or whatever. Uh, And through a lot of hustle, we signed a few customers. There was a big barrier to entry because the elevator is a safety operating system uh, and people are afraid that you come with a startup, you plug something on the elevator and and then it will fall and they will die. So so it it took a lot of convincing and a lot of making sure our product was indeed very safe. And that's the way we signed the first customer. And that actually gave us the first ramp up to the first business model, which was actually a maintenance company that we built out of the beginning and that helped us build the right product. So in a few years, we gathered a thousand elevators in the maintenance. We had our own mechanics and that were building owners and building managers, providing us the maintenance contract, including our technology. So we tested our technology on the ground with real customers and real mechanics. And we tested right away the impact on the p because what we tested is, are we able to sell more expensive than Otis? Are we able to sell more expensive than Connie? Are we able to make more margin and have happier customers? And after one, two, three years of working like that, we had a profitable business model. We had the proof that our vision was relevant because we were 20, 30% more expensive than the downward price cycle that was happening on the market. We had much happier mechanics and we had much happier customers.
0: Okay, so you start out as an actual elevator maintenance business, a tech-enabled ele- elevator maintenance business. And this is probably yes. a good sort of like stop point if we call this kind of phase one because then there's a kind of phase two of the business, isn't there, where you change that business model. This might be a good time to sort of rewind a little bit and think about how you funded the business and the choices that you made leading up to that sort of, that that phase one point. I think I'm correct in saying, you know, early in in the company's life, you guys received an offer of a 500K investment from an angel syndicate, but you turned Mm -hmm. it down and would love to understand why you turned that down. and, And then more broadly, how you were thinking of financing that company.
2: So the very, very phase zero, we decided to finance it ourselves uh, with my brother, so the MVP the MVP part. And that's the moment when we received that, that angel's uh, deal. At the time, we were convinced that, yes, you shouldn't leave a cookie on the table, but then you should also be very much watchful on who you bring in your cap table and on which terms. Our reasoning was we don't need that money yet, so let's not just take it because we'll have better terms six forms uh, afterwards. And this is exactly what happened. So we turned down the money, we did the MVP, the money arrived pre-incorporation, pre-even specific idea. So it was just a bet on us and on the market. And once we had the MVP, it was indeed much easier to to raise a bit more money, and specifically in much better terms. So we raised a million three months after incorporations when we had the the MVP and the first elevator installed in an hotel uh, next to Paris. At this stage, Although we did turn on the f- turn of the first money and we did like accept that round, we didn't wait all the consequences of bringing angel and kind of almost VC money to the company. We're okay. I'm just giving a, like less than 20% of it. I have full control. It's a million euros. Uh, I can just continue my life as it were before. It's, it's still my company and, and let's go let's go move forward. That that was phase zero. Then what happened is we built that maintenance business and we built that product with that first million. And very fast, we understand that the scale does cut a, cost a lot of money. So if we want to grow fast and we want to gain those customers faster, we need to spend a lot on the growth and on the sales and on the marketing which we start doing because at this stage, you're clearly not thinking you should be profitable or anything. You're investing tons on the product and then tons on on the growth. So it gets us to another round with our angel investors where we get another 2 million. And then afterwards, it gets us to a first Series A round with a a French VC fund of of 6 million, or 7 million in total in 2019, so two two years or two years and a half after actually starting the company.
0: So that's 10, so it's about 10 million euros in total raised up until that point. And that Series A, at the point at which you raised that Series A, were you still in this sort of phase one business model of, okay, we are uh, an tech enabled ele- elevator maintenance business? Or had you started to move the business model into, I guess, a more scalable option, perhaps of a sort of you know software plus IoT hardware business?
2: We were still fully on the tech business model, but we were already thinking and working on the potential pivot to to, to make it just a SaaS, uh, a SaaS with hardware. And I think uh, that's also something that clearly saw that VC at the time is that, okay, there is a clear opportunity to to move that out of the tech business and, and, and make it as a SaaS. Uh, and that's a bit the thesis on which the Series A was done. Although at the time, the company uh, was completely... Still on the first business model. Presumably,
0: then the round, the series A, the round itself is predicated on moving towards that new business model.
2: Yes, uh, but that was not entirely explicit from other side of the table. And, and we were not in a hurry because growth was there at the time. So we're thinking, okay, we can continue. Uh, we have money to continue. And when the, the product is even better, we'll move to a full product mood. And I think our VC was expecting that move to happen earlier, but lacked explicitly in that. And we lacked experience to read between the lines. So it took us at least a year or more to actually decide on, on, on changing the business model.
1: So somewhere in between raising, uh, the first few angel rounds and then going to raise your series a, you'd mentioned earlier that. You didn't really comprehend the difference of having external investors on your cap table were there any lessons that you learned pretty quickly after taking that money
2: yeah i think you know we we did comprehend on the paper and we had read all the books and and spoken to all the, the fellow entrepreneurs that had raised money what we learned afterwards like living it is okay there is an actual expectations management to be put in place between the expectations of your investors and yourselves and the the direction, the strategic direction of the company is not something that you solely decide anymore. And even though you can read that, you can learn it before you actually experience it, it's very different. And and I think all the reporting part, this was was okay. Uh, The relationship was very good with our VC. But, but the example I just gave around, okay, expectations around the business model, it's a very good example because we were in the thinking that it's okay, we take another year and we decide when we're ready and that we think the product's not ready and we are very much product driven, whereas actually our investors might have expected a pivot earlier, might have expected us to be more growth focused and, and that, yeah, that was not really explicit. And I think that's something that then you learn. And actually, I think all those things, they come up to be much more problematic at the exit moment or at the next funding round. I think between funding rounds, well, you navigate this experience, at least that's the lesson we had and that's how we built it. Uh, but when it comes to, to discuss about more money or new funding ground on exit, all those differences, they just come back.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you've, you've got the initial capital um, from your series, a VC they've. Explicitly bought into what you're doing, and I guess implicitly have bought into this new SaaS model. How did you then sort of move the business forward? Do you have another year of iterating on the product? Can you talk us through that sort of that, that gradual move to the phase two of the business, and then perhaps where, where things, I guess, start to struggle a little bit?
2: Indeed. So we, we continue uh, our investments on the product, and we reached a moment where we really had the validation uh, at scale. On a thousand elevators, where we were making much more money than the market, and we we could pinpoint that it was thanks to the product and not just because we were paying higher salaries to our mechanics or any other external reason. And we could start having actual impact with our predictive maintenance uh, recommendations. And it was not even AI, it was not even machine learning yet, but it was really simple models where we could actually pinpoint the troubleshooting at the elevator. We could pinpoint that we Lowering the downtime of the elevators. And, and at this stage, we, we kind of finished our analysis of the market. And something which we underestimated at the beginning is that most of the market was still in the hands of those four players, four global players. So, Kony, Otis, Schindler, uh, and ThyssenKrupp. And they were indeed the small and medium players arriving on the market and taking market share, but they were still in the mom and pop shop phase, you know, small and medium companies that are very old school not digital, and our decision at the time is, okay, who do we target? Who do we sell the technology to? And the figures were running great if you were to send the technology to the big guys, especially if you would license it to more than one. And they would work as well on the the small and medium enterprises. But then at scale with many, many customers around many countries. And we decided that the end game was sell the tech to the big guys. I think that was, what we wanted maybe since the beginning, because it's a good way of actually putting a value on the work we had done. And we had no, you know, it was not like we had decided this is going to be IPO or nothing. Huh? We we're completely ready to, to have a nice exit at some point and to, and to put a money price on the tech that we had built. So we started both to have on the small and medium enterprises, a business model that would be functional and profitable. And that could be like the bread and butter of the company and a more strategic pipeline with the four big guys. And what happened is we very quickly entered into negotiation with the big guys. And that very quickly became of acquisitive discussions so very quickly on we were in touch with headquarter guys at the top level of the company that were potentially interested with almost four of the four of them and very very quickly we also had you know the global head of m a on the phone and that kind of stuff and on the other hand with the small and medium enterprises we had excellent traction on the sales parts. So we started selling tons of contracts with tons of ARR, and we started struggling when it was about putting that in motion on the ground. And I think that's something that happens a lot in IoT and in hardware is that you're able to sell, you have a complete buyout on the ARR by the customer, But then when he actually needs to send someone to install a box on every elevator the adoption curve is much longer and much harder than on software so we had these brilliant contracts but they were basically not bringing any money yet because the guys were very slow in implementation and it would have cost us tons of money again to do that for them, and the growth then was the economics of the growth were not good anymore, and that's a story I've discussed with many other hardware startups and and similar businesses where you enter in in that moment where adoption on the ground is very hard and it costs a lot to to overcome it
0: so actually the, the actual ops and, and the delivery of that growth that you were you were able to sign was was the sort of the core challenge at the s m e side of the business, and I guess then that sort of pushes revenue out a little bit you know, growth from a from a kind of top line perspective isn't perhaps what Series B investors would want to have seen. But it sounds like really interesting conversations were happening at that enterprise level, right? And you know, the, the classic sort of conversation of well, should we partner with you or should we just buy you um type of situation? And so so where did that go? Because it feels like somewhere along the line that obviously didn't happen and would love to understand more
2: so we had in-depth conversations with with three of them and that typical discussion between okay let's let's sell or, or let's partner went mostly into let's partner and sell or something similar and we entered i would say like almost exclusive deep negotiations with one of them that we at the very top level with the board, with uh, the CEO, and we we're, were completely convinced that that could be a very good thing because they had this install base uh, on the in the total world. They had a business case for China that we also had where our technology could actually change a lot of the market there. So the volumes were there, their R&D team was not pushing against us, which is always the case in those kind of scenarios where you come with a a tech that you've built with 10 millions in three years, and they've built spending five to 10 years and 200 millions on something which does like one-tenth of what you do. In terms of actual output on the ground, and they think like since they have more scale and and they, and they've done complete something completely over engineered and more complicated, their tech is there, But they're just like fighting to defend their job. And with that specific company, the R&D was actually cooperative, and the most interesting, the PNL owners in the countries and in the regions were extremely cooperative. Uh, because they had seen in France what we were doing, they knew about it, and they wanted the same for their own PLs, for their own mechanics, and for their own customers. So we had a very good trend. We came up to, to a few time shifts, and one which was final, let's say, and it was basically a stage acquisition in three stages, first stage immediate, uh, but they wouldn't take the whole control. And then they would take full control after two years, and we would have another on out after three more years. But all the financial investors would be off after two years. It was a nice deal. We were very much aligned with the operation teams. Uh, and then, those stocks of these elevator stocks on the markets that had an enormous rally during COVID because they're extremely safe, they don't move, the, the cash flow was flowing during COVID because you still need to maintain those elevators during, during COVID. And that tremendous rally in 2021 which was the moment when we started our negotiations, uh, were hit very bad in 2022. That company, which was very much exposed to China, was hit very bad by the lockdown in China in early 2022. I don't know if you remember, but Shanghai was locked down. All the factories were in Shanghai for the whole world, so basically they were stopped. And at some point they had to communicate to to us and to the board that they would stop everything a few weeks prior to final due diligence and closing.
0: Oh, that's, that's crushing. That's really, really hard, right? OK, so that acquisition process falls over, which leaves you, um, I guess, in the position of, of needing additional financing, right, of, of needing to do a series B or go back to your, your original investors.
2: Exactly. And I think that's where we, we learned a lot, because uh, we were so positive about that scenario that we didn't invest enough time and energy on finding other ways of building the company and growing the company. And we became biased by thinking, okay, that's the best way for that technology and that business model is to partner with a big group. So all the other ways were less appealing to us. And that's the moment where we stopped our Series business efforts and we didn't put enough competition on the acquisition deal. And I think we were, we were a bit naive there. What, what I learned here is that I was expecting a lot of experience and guidance from our cap table and from our board and from our VC. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And I've listened afterwards to many acquisitions in similar spaces where it's not a tech company buying a tech startup. It's actually a non-tech industrial or whatever non-tech company buying a tech company. This is the hardest MA. Uh, if you're looking for an financial exit and the way of doing it is is very specific and you have to be extremely aggressive. You have to put competition very early on. You need to resign for more money before you enter in negotiations, because if they do know that you don't have cash, they will crush you. And all that sounds like very common sense. But where you're in it, you're in it and nobody is actually telling you you should do that, you're just too optimistic. Because as an entrepreneur, you have this optimistic bias, and I was way too optimistic. And our VC should have, you know, pulled the alarm and say, "I'm going to give you more money right now, so you're not negotiating with us, with them, with nobody, no money on your bank account. Let's go competitive right away. Let's find a Series B." And he did none of that, and he was with us like fearful full FOMO every time they would negotiate with us. And I think that's the biggest lesson I have is at the end of those six years, it, it ended up with bad luck, but then if it would have ended up uh, positively, it would have been good luck as well because we didn't ace that tactical part of the exit. And I think exit of is extremely hard. I think it's much harder, you know, to sell a company for 100 million than raising 100 million valuation. And if you don't have the right guys that have done that already, you have much more chances to fail than than to actually succeed.
1: It sounds like a, a pretty brutal thing that happened to you guys, and it's a story that we've heard a couple of times. Uh, you know, the majority of acquisition lemonade attempts fail. I guess the topic that we've been dancing around a little bit is uh, you, you tried to do this acquisition, it didn't work out, and then you went out to raise a round. What wound up happening with Uptime?
2: Actually, we we had started to, to raise around earlier on, and we understood that it was hard because we had this uh, gross hardware economics that were tough compared to a full size uh, business model. So when the M&A didn't went through, we we're already late on cash by far. Uh, so basically we closed out the business in the next months and the assets were sold to Otis a few months after for a few millions. and That's how it ended up. So it's like really full circle. And that was also a nice experience because restructuring is something I had never done before. And I learned tons there. And I think there are so many hidden opportunities in restructuring because I think there are many companies and startups that end up like being short on cash but have great assets and a great team. And there there are ways to save that. And we didn't find them, but we didn't push for it neither because at this stage, we're already convinced that this was not a business model that was fit for VC growth due to the hardware, due to the cost of the R&D. And if we couldn't exit it properly with uh, an industrial, then just bindling an SMB out of 11 maintenance was not what we wanted to do anyways, especially once you, you don't have a big part of the capital left anymore. So so I think that's also the key lesson is not every business is clearly VC compatible. It's not because you have tech and it's not because VC are willing to put money in your business that you actually are VC compatible and it's actually a good bet for you and for your own money at the end of the day. If you you don't
1: mind me asking, how did things pan out after this, uh, the, the tech acquisition? Did you have a workout period? These situations are very emotionally difficult. And also you've got all of these investors on your cap table, probably with liquidation preferences and those sorts of things. How did you handle that?
2: Well, actually, it was extremely simple because we were past uh, any liquidation prep or anything were actually sold in court. Uh, so we went through the equivalent of chapter 11 in France. And, and, and that's the moment all your captives say, is, okay, too late. Sorry, guys. I was surprised because all our angels, investors and our financial investors were very supportive and said, okay, we tried. We shot at the moon. We didn't get it. Thank you guys for the ride. And hopefully you can build something next and, and we, we might be very happy to be part of it as well uh, so, so that was easy for the employees it was very easy as well so so we had a great team that was very i would say dedicated to the project but once we understood it was it was that basically everybody like uh, found a job and it, i mean it was it, it was a very nice one and regarding the workout period uh it was not very long because odys has whole you know their own R and D team and they just decided to take on the the technology by themselves, so we, we had a few calls to explain uh, how it goes, and we keep uh, supporting them, but but they'll take it from there. Awesome. So
0: I mean, look, yeah, first of all, your your resilience and, and positivity, and and you are talking about this story is is amazing, right? I, I'm I'm full of admiration for that. It it sounds like the two the two big lessons that I've taken away so far have been that importance of having an insurance option, of not having sort of all your eggs in one particular basket. And I'm curious in terms of it, if you if you can sort of expand on some of the other things that you might've done differently.
2: The, the first one, and is the most tactical one, and we discussed it, is, is this M&A negotiation, this dual track and stuff. And here, I think it's very theoretical to say you should do both in parallel because it's a, in terms of energy consumption, it's, it's tremendous. It's much more than just a fundraising run. And you have to have at that moment a company that is able to maintain itself by itself where you're not actually needed on the day-to-day like zero. Otherwise, doing the draw track is impossible. And I think that's the first thing that you should know before entering any kind of M&A track. And, and the second thing here, which is also extremely important, is to really, really get people that have done it before. That was not the case of our board. And that was not the case of our investment banker. We had an investment banker that helped us with a series A. And then he sold us that he did a lot of exits, blah, blah, blah. But actually he did LBOs and he did exits for normal companies, not for tech startups to non-tech corporates. And especially non with an intentional one, which is a publicly traded 30 billion uh, market cap company. And negotiating with a 30 billion market cap company is not the same with, with you know your average company there. So I think getting the right people is the second most important to be able to be 100% focused on the draft track. And and I'm saying 100% in terms of energy, you cannot be uh, dealing with the company at the same time. Uh, Otherwise, you, you will sleep two hours a night. The second thing I learned around there is the play of luck in how these things turns out and how luck is actually important when you are the entrepreneur on the VC track you can do the best with your execution and everything, but when you start out, you will never know will you have a great business model, will that work out or not. And then at some point, even though it works out, the next stage is still kind of very you know, unknown. And the macronymic changes in the environment are a great also showcase that it, it comes a lot with luck. And I think that it's, it's about you as an entrepreneur to make a clear decision are you ready to play against the odds or not? And I think I was over-optimistic and always was saying, yes, of course, uh, I'm August and I play against the odds, I always win and that's false. I clearly, I, I lost a few times. So I think here, knowing your, your risk adversity and knowing that you are clearly playing against the statistics is something very important because at the end of the day, for, for our investor, for our VC, we're just one participation among many others and pushing it you know, to shoot for the moon is the basic scenario for them. But if you go bust, it doesn't matter that much. Uh, but if you go bust after six years, well, actually you lost everything you've been working on for six years. So, so that's the second thing. I mean, it's about making sure you're ready to play that casino game because there are also many other tracks where you can build companies that are profitable, self-sustainable, bootstrapped, uh, and actually give much less chance to luck because you're not running on a very thin success scenario, but you have a much wider chances of, of success because your definition of success is a bit different. The third one is to properly choose the bet at the beginning. This bet against an oligopoly in an industrial scenario was very appealing and was very sexy for us and for angels and for early investors. Yes, let's go take on this cartel. And I've looked at it a bit more sensitively and it was a bit more rational, we would have understood that it's, it's a big bet and it didn't have many chances of success. I don't regret a single minute of those six years. I've learned so much. I'm such a a different person after six years. And I I really feel like I was a complete virgin uh, at the time that didn't know shit. And and now I I feel like I've learned so much that I can actually do many, many things. And I'm in this phase where I'm thinking, okay, what's good for me? Because then it's a personal choice of what is good for you and who you want to be. And maybe you would like to take that huge... VC bet and, and play against the odds, or maybe you'd like to build something much more bootstrap, or maybe you actually want to buy a company which already exists and use all your skills to make it ten times bigger. Uh, and I think that those are the questions that any entrepreneur should ask himself before starting.
0: You, you can't leave us on this cliffhanger now, right? You have to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to tell us uh, with with everything that you have now learned. What's the next move for you? What does the future hold?
2: It's hard to answer because I don't have clarity yet. the The first next is uh, rest a bit, use my skill to sell them as a freelancer, pile up a bit of money on the side uh, before the next the next ride. So, so that is what I'm doing right now. Regarding the next project, I clearly have a direction of something that will be in software because I think I learned tons of around software and product and I just love it. And it appeals to me a lot like building something, this creative thing that you can do anything with software and solving the user's problems and solving the consumer problems and the value chain problems. I just love that. So it will clearly be there. As I told you, I'm clearly more inclined in any case on on premium business model with high margins and lower volumes. So I think that's also a a big defining one. And then in terms of financing and story, through my freelancers gigs and, and through through my studies of what I liked in, in the past, uh, I believe there are many, many value opportunities out there in the software industry with existing companies that are not yet Modern that are not yet using all the startup tactics. I think startup tactics are extremely good. I think how startups builds product management, how these SaaS companies have built those growth engines and growth rules and and sales discipline and toolkits and stuff is amazing. And bringing that to more traditional company can unlock tons of value. So I'm looking at plays that are in acquisitions where I could bring skills and knowledge and people that would accelerate taking a 100 existing software companies. That's what I'm looking at at the moment.
0: Wow, okay, so taking an existing business and essentially modernizing it and, um, and, and taking the best of what you've learned from the startup space and applying it to a traditional industry.
2: Exactly. And I, and I think it can be very nice as a, as a people adventure I think it can be extremely nice also in terms of uh, financial uh, rewards uh, because the uh, the, the acquisition space is, uh, you already have some leverage uh, when you acquire a company that is profitable and and, uh, unlocking even more thanks to the transformation uh, could be very interesting. So all in all, I think it it might apply uh, well to the kind of entrepreneur I am.
0: It's really exciting well i'm really looking forward to seeing what that next move is going to be and uh, seeing your acquisition announcement plastered all over linkedin so look big 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 thank you oriston for coming on to um onto the pod to chat to us today i think there's some some brilliant takeaways there big
2: thanks thank you marie and thank you Shaw, for hosting me what a great
1: episode so many valuable hard-earned lessons in there from a super seasoned founder Augustin did a great job summarizing his key takeaways from the uptime experience, so here are a few recaps. For anyone thinking of starting a venture-backed business, think carefully about both your industry and the timing of it. Does this industry structure lend itself to new incumbents? Is the macro environment trending in your favor? Everyone needs luck in business, but you can help make a lot of that luck by rigorously stress testing your business idea before you dive in. When you bring on institutional investors, alignment is everything. Make sure you understand what prospective investors expect of you and your business before closing around with them. If possible, do references with their portfolio companies, especially the ones that pivoted or failed, to see how your future marriage partner behaves when things don't go to plan. Augustine's experience showed how seemingly small differences in expectations simmer under the surface until funding is required, when all of a sudden they are clear for everyone. And finally, make sure you have people in your corner who have done it before and those whose advice you trust, especially when it comes to running a sale process. The difference between success and failure in those situations can often be down to very small tactical decisions. Having someone advising you that has been through that before can genuinely be transformational. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode.